left, I realized something important. Getting ready for a visit from Jesus is not an eight-minute job. And then he says, the doorbell rang. Here's the question. What does it mean to get ready to meet Jesus? Really? Max Lucado, in his book, Six Hours, One Friday, tells how the U.S. government in, 19, or in 1811 began collecting and storing letters like the following note dated February 6, 1974. It says, I am sending $10 for blankets I stole while in World War II. My mind could not rest. Sorry, I'm late. It was signed an XGI. The U.S. government not only collects and stores these letters, but the Treasury Department established a fund and labeled it the Conscience Fund. Since its inception, the fund has grown to almost $7 million. Oh, and there was a postscript to that letter from the XGI. It read, I want to be ready to meet with God. What does it mean to be ready to meet God? Really? What if what Dale Bruner calls the great visit were to happen this week? Or, or even this year? What would it mean for you to get ready to actually meet face-to-face God? This was... John the Baptist's entire life's mission. He lived to get anyone who would listen ready to meet the king of heaven. The king who was coming to establish his reign on the earth. In Matthew chapter 3, that's where we'll be today. You heard it read already. We find it says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John's purpose was to get the people ready for the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the king, who we know is Jesus. Now to do that, in our little 12 verses of chapter 3 we want to look at today, he preaches two sermons, effectively. The essence of the first one of those is in the first three verses, and the second one is in verses 7 to 12, but before we listen to, our, to John's sermons, let's think about who this preacher is. Um, in verses 4 and 5, he's described to us, he wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt round his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. They were going to be baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So, so far we know these things about John. He dressed weird, he ate weirder, and he hollered loudly. Okay. That's what we know about, about John. Um, both the wardrobe 
and the diet marked John as a poor man who lived in the desert. Okay? What our Bibles call the wilderness. Their wilderness was more of a desert. The attire, though, especially links him to the ancient desert prophet and specifically to Elijah, who wore similar garb. Dale Bruner puts it this way. He says, all Israel expected a next-to-last man. Malachi told Israel that he would be an Elijah in Malachi 4. Isaiah told Israel he would be a preparer in Isaiah 40. So all Israel looked for this penultimate Elijah preparer. The New Testament Gospels declare to us, here he is. John is the next to last man. So some 700 years before, Isaiah predicted it. He says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Some 400 years before, Malachi predicts it. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day that the Lord comes. And Jesus, a little bit later in our study of Matthew, we'll see it, he confirms it. Jesus says, for all the prophets and the law um, prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he, John, is Elijah who is to come. So John was the long-awaited one who would go before and announce the arrival of the kingdom and of necessity then of the king. There's one other thing that, that you should know about John the Baptist before we look at his sermons in this chapter. And that is that Jesus calls him in Matthew 11. We'll, we'll explore this further. But Jesus calls him the greatest man who ever walked on the face of the earth. In Matthew 11, it says, Truly I say to you, Jesus says, Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Okay. The greatest man to ever walk the face of the earth. So in our story today, in this account, we have the greatest man who ever lived wandering in the wilderness what we would call the desert, poor, dressed in a prophet's garb, hollering about the coming of the kingdom. And this was a bit shocking in the day for a couple of reasons. First of all, it would have been wholly unexpected because it was so rare. There had been no recorded prophetic revelation for 400 years, no prophets. Since Malachi made that prediction about Elijah coming, there had been silence, except for that little explosion around the birth of Christ. It would have been unexpected because it was so rare, and it was been unexpected because the messenger was so peculiar. Um, Matt Woodley retells the account this way. I'd like to read it to you. He says, in John's day, spiritually important events occurred at the temple. That magnificent white stone structure that dominated the scene in Jerusalem. The temple formed the core of religious life. If you wanted to get closer to God, if you wanted to join the in-group of good religious people, if you wanted to look sophisticated or spiritual or righteous, you went to the temple. And as a good Jew, you didn't need to be baptized. 
That ritual was reserved for second-class outsider Gentile converts. Now imagine the disgust, he says, people must have felt when John appeared in the desert and started his spiritual renewal movement. Instead of going to the temple, now you had to trek into the desert, that dry, ugly, God-forsaken outpost in the sticks. And when you finally arrived, you wouldn't find a slick, sensitive, smart preacher. Instead, you'd meet the hairy, uncouth, insect-grubbing bozo of the backwoods railing at you about your need to repent. Everyone... John would say, must go down in the brown, murky waters of the Jordan River. Sorry, but the king is coming, and even you good and righteous people aren't ready. So stop acting like religious jerks and repent. Your family heritage and your spiritual resume mean nothing to God. Everyone needs to get dunked, washed and cleansed. Everyone must die and be born again. He says, imagine the shock of this message. It would be like God saying the following to a hip urban megachurch. If you want to experience God's exciting new thing, drive to a small dusty town off the beaten track at the second church of the Spirit and the Blood, Church of the Holy Spirit in Christ, a tiny storefront operation three blocks west of the only restaurant bar on Main Street. You'll meet a couple named Clem and Bertha. These toothless, recovering meth addicts live in the local trailer park and will be wearing old bowling shirts from the local thrift store. But they're my chosen instruments, and their church is my chosen place. Drive there. Find them. Submit to their bilingual preaching and praying. In their presence, become like little children. Clem and Bertha will lead you to encounter my grace. That's right. Renewal is coming, but it won't happen through you. He says that was John's core message. But what's really was unexpected as I read this story is the response, right? You got this weird guy wearing weird clothes, eating weird food, hollering at people in the desert, and it says Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Crowds of people are going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, I understand how TV preachers get a big audience. They promise you wealth. They promise you health. They promise you the life you've always dreamed of. I understand that. But when crowds turn out to be told to repent, I think that's a great work of God. Today, you're going to be given an opportunity to repent. You are going to be given, not the person next to you, you are going to be given an opportunity to repent. Don't resist God's prompting. Don't resist God's prompting. When you're given that opportunity today. This repentance is the thrust of John's first sermon. This is the entire text of John's sermon as Matthew records it for us. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's it. That's all Matthew tells us that he says. Um, He gets right to the point, doesn't he? Just two points No poem, okay? No stories, no illustrations, just repent, 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. Dale Bruner says that the expression, the kingdom of heaven, is the Baptist's way of talking, and later Jesus' way too, about God's great coming incursion. Kingdom is a social word, first of all. Kingdom indicates that God is about to do a big world event and not just an individual event. A cosmic thing and not just a heart thing. What happens when God comes is not going to be a grape shot, he said. It's going to be nuclear, a kind of explosion, a reshaping of the earth. Bruner calls it the great visit. And he writes that John is convinced that the great visit is about to happen. Thus, people must abandon all that's despicable and come to baptism as God's authorized way of cleaning people up for the visit and as people's way of showing that they really want to meet the visitor. As we know, John's premonition was correct. God does make his visit in Jesus. So at the center of the near-coming kingdom is the nearness of the coming king. As John's going to tell us in his second sermon, um, this near king is mightier, he's more highly exalted, even above the greatest man who ever walked the face of the earth. And that means he's mightier and more exalted than you. And he is at the door, John says, so to speak. He is at the door and about to enter. John is the herald that goes before this great coming king. Um, It's just like the sergeant of arms in the House of Representatives. When the president's about to enter the room to give that State of the Union address, the sergeant of arms of the House and the Senate wait at the doorway to the House chamber before the president enters to deliver the State of Union address. Just as the president reaches the door to the chamber, the house sergeant-at-arms stands just inside the doors, facing the speaker and waiting for the president to be ready to enter the chamber. And when he's ready, the sergeant-at-arms announces his presence, loudly stating the phrase, Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. And the president enters the room. John is like the sergeant-at-arms. The the herald who waits at the door, and when he sees the president is at the door, about to enter the room, he announces his presence. The idea is that everybody in the room needs to be aware and be ready to honor the president when he enters that room. John has a much higher tasking, one that warrants him the title of the greatest man ever to walk the face of the earth. His tasking is he wants everyone to be ready for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the judge of all the earth, when he enters the room. And that's the preoccupation of his second sermon. We'll back to our question and change it just a little bit. Are you ready to meet the King of Kings? If that happened this week, are you ready? John is answering the question we started with. And he's answering with one word. How do you get ready? You repent. That's how you get ready. Um, 
John Ortberg has a good warning for us as we think about repentance. He says, repentance is all too often misunderstood. For many people, to repent means to feel really, really bad for sin. It's a term of emotion, often thought of in, ter- often thought of in terms of a cathartic experience. He says, I remember as a teenager attending Christian camps where leaders were masters at producing this kind of experience. Seven days of sleep deprivation, a diet of sugar and fats, relationships of incandescent intensity, radical self-disclosure, a hundred fireside verses of kumbaya, at a speaker who told stories of one of last year's campers who died in a car crash on the way home, and people were ready to confess anything, he said. They stood and confessed in tears to total strangers. The feelings were sincere, he said, but they often didn't produce lasting change. Because repentance involves not just our feelings, but what we think and believe and what we do. All of those things are involved in what John means when he says, repent. Um, See, when we repent, we change our mind about what we have believed to be true. Whenever we sin which is what we are repenting of, we have been duped into believing that something that is not true is true. We've been duped into thinking that there's a better way for us to live than that which God has for us. We've been duped into thinking that we, as a result, are smarter than God. We've been duped into thinking that God does not care for us or is not able to care for us. For others, he cares for, but not not for me. And of that kind of thinking and believing, we have to repent. We have to change our thinking and believing. So repentance involves a change of mind of what we believe to be true. But it also affects our feelings. Paul connects them when in 2 Corinthians 7 he says, Godly grief and emotion produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So there is an emotional component of repentance. When we come to grips that we have fallen into sin, and that sin is against our great King and Savior, the one that the other John says is the one who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and that our sin inevitably harms those we love most, we are necessarily grieved if we understand that we have sinned. We have sinned against God, and that sin has ramifications against the people we love most. We are necessarily grieved. And this insight and this sorrow leads to a change in our actions. John Ortberg calls it restructuring. He says, consider an analogy. An alcoholic hears the news that sobriety is a possibility even for him. And he comes to believe this. Not perfectly, not with 100% certainty, but enough to act on it. How can he respond? Not just by regretting his drinking. He has done that before bitterly and sincerely. Not just by promising he will quit by supreme effort of his will. This has been tried and found wanting also. Instead, he's invited to a new response, to restructure his life. 
He cannot be transformed by his will alone, but neither is he a passive victim. He can put himself in a place where a great power, capital P, can enable what he cannot. He restructures his days around relationships and activities that will enable him to enter a life of sobriety. So when John says repent, he is calling us to all these things, to change what we think and believe, to change how we feel about our choices, and to restructure our days to align ourselves fully with the grace of God that gives us hope of transformation. We change what we think and believe, we change what we feel, and we change what we actually do. Wayne Grudem says, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. John is telling us that the single most important thing that you can do to get ready to meet the king is to repent in this way. To confess your sins, turn to God for grace to restructure your life, to truly change. Now, when was the last time that you can remember intentionally and fully repenting in what I'm talking about? Well, you realized that you had sinned, and you acknowledged that you had sinned, you confessed it, and you regretted it, and you took decisive action to change. Can you remember the last time you did all of those things? Have you ever done all of those things? That's what real repentance is. We don't change perfectly or fully, but we should be changing. There is a kingdom coming, John says, that you need to be ready readying yourself to meet, and you do that by repenting of your sins. Now, John's message, it's easy to think, well, that was his message then. Jesus came, so that was then. But the nearness of the kingdom did not fade away and become irrelevant at the launch of Jesus' public ministry. This idea of nearness of the kingdom breaking in on us is just as relevant for you and me today as it was in John's day. Jesus picked up in his teaching the exact same message as John. Jesus would say, he would begin to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The exact same thing that John was saying. At the end of Matthew, we're going to hear Jesus say, Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part... Of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you almost be ready. You, you must also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You must be repentant when he comes. Paul adds to it this idea that concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Come unexpectedly. His second coming has the same nearness, the same sense of imminency as does his first, and it calls for the same response. Repent. Get ready to meet your God. 
that could come, you could be one heartbeat away from that, or you could be one year away from that. The second coming has that same sense of nearness. And John's second sermon really drives this readiness idea home. In verses 7 through 10, he says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the religious leaders come out. John does not welcome them. He rebukes them and he calls them a bunch of snakes. Who warned you to flee? From the wrath to come. See, all of this is built on the idea that there is wrath coming. Paul makes this explicit in his letter, 2 Thessalonians. He says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God or on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus... They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. There is wrath coming and John says that Jesus is going to bring it. And the big danger for the religious leaders, for the good people, is that they presumed that they were good. They were all right with God. They were in no danger. They thought that they were secure because they were children of Abraham. They were Jews. They were part of the chosen people. And as such, they had no need to repent. Repentance was for those outside of their group. They already had their ticket punched. There's a guy named Peter Kuba, and he runs a website called Heaven's Registry. And for 20 bucks, Kuba offers guaranteed admission into heaven. Okay. Although police consider this a scam, Detective Mark Johnson admits it's pretty tough to prove that he's wrong legally. The certificate, by the way, is also available for cherished pets at a cost of $15. Commenting on the report, Pastor Alan Andrus says, um, Our calling is to teach and to preach what's in the Bible. I guess there will always be people who take advantage of people and use religion to do it. The Heavens Registry website warns that only God knows which faults will keep us out of heaven. But after raising that specter of uncertainty, the website promises that with this 100% guaranteed heavenly admission certificate, there is now no need for confessions or penance. Now that sounds silly, but that can be our silliness. If 
we presume to be secure before God based on anything other than repentance of our sins and faith in Jesus. If you're thinking, I attend church. I attend North Wake. I put money in the plate. I even help them out with journey of faith. I read mostly through the Bible in a year. I went on a mission trip. I even served in children's ministry. I'm in the seminary, for gosh sake. I must be in. Don't presume that you are in a repentance-free zone because of something you have done or some group you belong to. There is no such thing. All, John says, all who would be ready for the king who is coming nearer than we think must repent of their sins and turn to God for grace through Christ alone. There are no, no other ways. All must repent. Dale Bruner says, We must learn to read the words Pharisees and Sadducees and see ourselves or we will miss half of Matthew. In this story, we are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And John is warning us that good people must repent. He's extraordinarily bold. He's uncompromising in their face. Um, There's only one way to be ready to meet God. Repent and turn to God for mercy. The closing verses read like this. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, the chaff, he'll burn with unquenchable fire. Even though John is the greatest man to ever live, He knows that the coming king is far greater. It's interesting the way he establishes that. He says, I'm not even worthy to carry his sandal. Now, in, in Jesus' day, disciples were kind of like slaves. That's an integral part of the internships that Jeff Doyle has developed here at North Wake. Okay? <laughs> Interns are like slaves. But the disciples... Um, there, there were things that they would not be expected to do. One of the things that they would not be expected to do was to carry their, disciple, their mentor's uh, sandals. That was because the foot was considered so dirty and the sole of the foot such an affront. Um, that was reserved for non-Jewish slaves, the lowest of the slaves. That was only... That they were the only ones that would be asked to do that task. So what John is saying is that the greatest man who ever lived is not worthy to do the thing that the lowest slave would be asked to do of the king who's coming. Um, 
and he comes. He comes in judgment. And, and John's abundantly clear. Look at verse 10 and 12 again. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, he's going to burn with unquenchable fire. Such is the one who is coming. Now, if we were honest, almost all of us would say, we hate repenting. Okay? It is a miserable experience. It's degrading. It's exposing. It's humiliating. We look forward to repentance like we look forward to going to the dentist. Okay? We know it's good for us, but we hate it. And so a lot of times we concoct all kinds of strategies to try to manage our sin so we don't have to repent of it. So we will blame someone else. We'll shirk our responsibility. We'll, we'll pledge more to do more so we can compensate for our wrongs. Or we'll just try to forget about them. Anything but repenting. But John says we must repent. Repentance is for us all. For pastors and elders, and husbands and wives, and singles and children. It's for us all if we want to be ready to meet the King who is coming. God is offering kindness to us. You know, we don't want to repent, but the Bible, the Bible regularly presents repentance as God's gift to us. In Isaiah 30, it says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In Romans 2, Paul says that it's God's kindness that's meant to lead you to repentance. In 2 Corinthians, as we've seen, Paul says that a repentance that leads, repentance leads to salvation without regret. No regrets. And all of heaven rejoices whenever one sinner repents. See, when God offers you a chance to repent, He's offering you a precious gift that was bought for you at great price. Acts chapter 5 says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus' death and resurrection and exaltation. Why? So that you could be given a chance to repent. That's why Jesus was mocked and beaten and spat upon and nailed to a tree to buy this gift of repentance for you and for me. And repentance comes to us in two waves, really. It comes to us unto salvation. To become a follower of Jesus Christ, you must repent of your sins. You must repent of the wrong beliefs you've held and place your trust in Christ alone. Mark chapter 1 talks about this. It says, after John was arrested, John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's how you get into the kingdom. That's how you get into the family of God, by repentance and belief. 
But the second wave of repentance then comes to us unto sanctification, unto growing as a Christ follower. And we see this in, Re- in Revelation chapter 3. It says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, Jesus says, so be zealous and repent. This is to the church. Be zealous and repent. And so this morning, we have the privilege as a church family of celebrating the Lord's Supper together. It's the perfect opportunity to repent. To come to the table and repent of your sins and embrace the grace that bought you that privilege through Christ's death and resurrection. Um, Kevin, uh, Kevin Kim tells a story that I'd like to share with you that I hope will help us as we approach the table in just a minute. He says, every year at our Ash Wednesday service, people have an opportunity to write their sins on a piece of paper, fold the paper, and then pin it onto a wooden cross as a reminder of Christ's forgiveness. One year, a family came to the service, and they walked through the worship experience as an entire family, and when they came to the confession station, they explained to their six-year-old son the practice of confessing their sin and writing it on the paper. And so when they all grabbed a sheet of paper and started writing their confessions, he did the same. Now remember, he's six. So he starts writing with large, clear, block letters. The rest of his family wrote their confessions, carefully folded the sheets so no one could see the sins they had written down. They intentionally left their names off the paper as well, and then they walked to the cross, pinned their sins on the cross. The six-year-old wrote, God, I'm sorry because I lie. And he signed his name, and he refused to fold it. He walked to the front and pinned it to the cross, and his parents asked, Why did you put your name on it? Don't you want to fold it up so no one can see? And then he said, I wrote my name on it because I want everyone to see it. Because if they know it was me, maybe they can help me stop. So, as you come to the table, there's, there's nowhere to display and pin your list of sins that you might be bringing in repentance. But you do have brothers and sisters, you have pastors and elders, you have women's ministry leaders who are here to, to come with you, to pray with you, to pray for you. As you come to hear your confession so that they can pray alongside you for God's mercy and favor in response to your obedience. So as you come today, let me encourage you, if if God is prompting you to repent today, don't let your pride cause you to resist that. Come in repentance and specifically correct your thinking. Express your sorrow and commit to change your course, to restructure your course from this point on. And don't feel like you need to do that alone. You don't. I'm going to ask our elders and ministry leaders, women's ministry leaders, to be available down in the front rows here. If you would like someone to pray with you and you're not here with someone from your family or small group who can do that with you, we're here to do that with you. So if you'll bow with me. 
Let's approach the table in that fashion. Jesus, we acknowledge that it is not in us to repent. But this too is a grace you give. A grace that you have purchased for us at great cost. So that our very ability to come and forsake our sins is because um, you did in fact lay down your life, not for your own sins, but for ours that we might be reconciled to you and the Father by the Spirit. And so we remember together as God's people that on the night on which he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it.